Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Hey guys, welcome to the Fanalytics podcast. And today we have uh, something new for us, something we're trying, something we're tremendously exciting about. We have an in-studio guest, uh, the great Jay Busby from Yahoo News. Hey, so this is Ada Chong. We do have Jay Busby here. He is a writer for Yahoo Sports since 2008. Jay has covered the Super Bowl, the Daytona 500, the Masters, the Indianapolis 500, Kentucky Derby, Final Four, NBA, NCAA football, and the MLB playoffs. He's also the author of Earnhardt Nation, a biography of NASCAR's Earnhardt family. Thanks for joining us, Jay. Well, thank you for having me here, and uh, I want to tell my bosses all that. It sounds like I actually do a lot of work, so it's good to... Good to hide behind that. It's good Pretty to be here. You got, you got a wonderful studio here. This is a, this is quite the operation for an early podcast. <laughs> well, impressive resume, and we're really excited to have you here. Thank you. Yeah. So, so Jay, as we get started today, the podcast is about analytics. It's about analytics related to sports. Now, when I think about applying analytics to sports, both the marketing side or the fan side, or what happens on field. One of the things I find myself thinking about is the analysts tend to have gaps. The analysts tend to be numbers guys. They like to work with spreadsheets. They like to look with, at data. And I think that happens both with, on the business side and in terms of you know, guys picking players. From my perspective, though, the thing that is often missing is kind of this deeper understanding of where fandom comes from. And I found myself over the last you know, few months or few years really, thinking that the thing that is the most important in terms of where fandom comes from is this notion of the stories that people travel with. And so, you know, I wanted to have you in to talk about fandom-based storytelling, the, the stories of sports. Yeah, I uh, come from the exact opposite angle from the analytics. I come from the story side. And so I think that it's good to see both sides coming together because from my perspective, I will have plenty of stories, I'll have, and, and I traffic in plenty of stories, and I'll say something along the lines of, oh, you know what, the New York Mets, they've always been terrible, they're always going to be terrible, every once in a while they might pop up, but then someone with uh, an analytical mind will say, well, you know, actually, you know what, this year they're doing okay, they're 11-1 and one or whatever their record might be at the moment, and it, and it cuts against that narrative that, that takes hold if you're, if you're looking at things only from a story perspective. So yeah, I think that analytics are, are tremendously valuable. 
to, to work in with the story, but you're right. Looking, pulling back to about a 10,000 foot view can sometimes put those numbers in perspective in a way that just looking at digits right. on a spreadsheet doesn't. Let me ask you, because it's about consumer behavior of fans. Well, let's start with the, the marketing side. When I, when I teach classes, I actually start off by telling them, um, you know, maybe it's kind of just spinning yarns in a way, but sort of talking about how my dad came from England and he was a rugby fan and he was into soccer, and I was sort of out of place. And so I started following my, um, my grandfather's team, who was from Pittsburgh. As a child of the 70s, that worked out great. Yes. I mean, so where Good do you... time for it. Yeah. <laughs> so where does... Um, so I'm just interested. Where, where, do you, where do you trace your fandom back to? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I moved to Atlanta. Well, I didn't move. I was moved to Atlanta when I was three years old. I didn't have a whole lot of say in the matter. And uh, my father... My parents both were from Virginia. And um, my father was and is a big uh, Washington sports fan. So he was a big Redskins fan. Uh, he was a big Washington Senators fan until they obviously moved. Uh, so his, his allegiances were to those kind of Virginia area teams, and particularly the Redskins. When he moved to Atlanta, he tried, we moved here in the uh, early 70s, and so he was trying to, to get, along with much, much of the rest of the city of Atlanta, trying to catch up with all these brand new teams, Hawks, Braves, Falcons, these teams that were literally all of them less than 10 years old in Atlanta. And so that was where my allegiance started. Now the problem with that is that when I was a kid, and right on up till now, for the most part, those teams sucked. They were awful. So I'm following the Falcons, and they're struggling to win three games at the same time as, as your Steelers, and the Dallas Cowboys are just running all over the league. So it was always, in, in, in elementary school, you've always got this battle between whether you want to go with what you believe in or what you think is popular. And what I believed in was the Atlanta teams. What was popular was anything but the Atlanta teams. So that was a, that was a constant struggle for me growing up, but it was very much, I'm here, I'm a new kid in a, in a relatively new sports town, and so yeah, I've hung on all the way through, from, from then all the way through to now. I'm surprised you didn't become a Cowboys fan. There was a lot of temptation. There was, uh, I, re I still remember in a carpool, we had two guys, one was a diehard Steelers fan, and one was a diehard Cowboys fan. They were all from Atlanta. I mean, we were all bandwagoners, but we had the big puffy jackets with the vinyl sleeves and all of that, so yeah, I was, I was very close to being a Cowboys fan, but I was spared that, uh, that horror. Yeah, that's interesting, because it, it is almost um, like a, it was a way to form an identity. Right. And I think, that, I think that's still true for, for kids, and it was almost like, oh, I'm going to wear the Steelers jersey. Oh, I'm yeah. going to wear the Cowboys jersey. And then you got the, oh, I'm going to settle for the Falcons jersey <laughs> kind of thing. Exactly. <laughs> so we're talking about these teams with such a long history, but the Atlanta United is brand new, and they have such a huge fan base. Why do you think that is? Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that it's, it's the sport rather than the team. I would, obviously, it has to be. But I think that, that you've got such a, a fan base that is so energized and so ready for something that has an honesty to it. And I think that the United, there, there's an honesty there that I'm not sure people ever necessarily feel with that, that when, you're, when you're going for another team in another city. You know, you can, you can be from Georgia, you can grow up in Georgia and you can be a Patriots fan or you can be a Dodgers fan, but you know in your heart that you're kind of pretending, that you're, that you're jumping on a bandwagon. Whereas, for, for better or for worse, when you are in a town and that town has a team, well, you, know, you automatically have a connection. And it's something that runs deeper than just, well, I happen to be here, might as well root for them. There's something that, and this, is, this, this 
is, is not trackable through analytics. This is where the story aspect comes in, the kind of personal connection, that there is some, something that bonds you to that team. And I think that the, the United is just a combination of all of that coming together at the right time. They, they put money in, they put the effort in, they've obviously got the, the Falcons and Arthur Blank's money behind it, they've got a beautiful stadium to play in, and it all works together. It, it builds on itself. Success breeds success, and fandom breeds fandom, so that if you've got this, this entire stadium full of people that are excited to be there, everybody, it, it multiplies on itself. Everybody's excited that everyone else is there, and so they get excited too. And I think that the United have been, have been a, a huge national success story for that exact reason. I can't believe I'm going to go down this path. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, I've, I've found myself multiple times talking about the United and what a special situation it is. And I, I, I agree with you. It's truly a special like the, the you know the the stars aligned for the soccer team and you know offhand I, I don't know the answer to this but I suspect that they are drawing thirty thousand more fans per game than anyone else in MLS and so I actually find myself kind of going wow this is interesting but almost asking the question of is this real you yeah. know is this fandom real. And part of me does wonder, and it's sort of a little bit of a, a side point, can fandom be real overnight? Or can fandom even be real over 10 years? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, we've had so much expansion in all these leagues o over time. That how long does it take to actually create the, uh, well, I, I don't know, Jay, who do you think is sort of the, who has the sort of the deepest fan sort of loyalty out there anywhere? I think you probably go with someone like the Chicago Cubs. Okay. I mean, that's a team that's been around for a century, and and they've lost for most of their century. Yeah. And yet the fans they take it as a badge of honor that they've been sticking through. But any of these long-term teams, uh, the Steelers, uh, the Yankees, the Red Sox, any of these teams that have been around for for decades upon decades, I think right. that that's it, that's it. Decades upon decades, and and I've. I tend to think, you know, I started off by telling a story about like my dad and my grandfather, and so how much is how much of that plays into this stuff as well? Yeah. That's uh, familial or you know generational, and and that's why with um, with the United, I look, I, I think we can't do anything except say this has been absolutely spectacular, right? But you know, will it will it endure? And that, I think that's an interesting question, especially you know given the Atlanta sports market is such an interesting thing. You know, usually they have to drag the fans to the, you know, they got to win a lot of games to drag the fans out. This one, the fans got out ahead of the team. Even. Right. It's going to be a question of, well, with any sports team, the, it has to make the jump from being just about the action on the field to being a cultural event. Mm -hmm. And it has to be something where participating in this, you don't have to know, you don't even have to be able to name how many players are on the field at one time. You, you don't much less know any of them, but you just, my kids want to go to a United game. Why? Because they want to be a part of that experience. They don't care what happens. They don't care if the United win or lose. Obviously, that helps. And Atlanta is, is one of the chief cities in, in rewarding a winner. If you, win, if you start winning, boom, we're all aboard. You start losing, eh, we're starting to pull back. But uh, I, think that, I think that fandom is it's, it's an interesting way to look at it now because I think fandom now can, can flare up so quickly we're almost used to and we almost accept the idea that that you can become a you can you can become a fan of a team instantly, and that team can can spread to the levels that the United has have. I'm not sure which firm tends to use it. I always get that confused. <laughs> anyway, uh, never did you you can spread to that point of fandom, uh, literally almost overnight in the case of the United. 
to me it's a to me it's a word I use a lot. I, I don't know if it's a word that you use a lot. Do you use think of the word fandom a lot when you're, yeah. I, I guess, selecting a story to write and figuring out how to write it? So how does the how does the fan come into it? The fan doesn't enter into the equation uh, in the creation of the story or in the writing of the story, uh, except to the, the extent that I want to do right by the fan. I don't want to treat the fan uh, just callously and, and just disregard what's important to them. Now, um, if I worry too much about what the fan is going to say, then, then yeah, that, that completely distorts the story. And if I make a mistake, if I, if I misspell a player's name, if I say that he, he won Defensive Player of the Year in 2010 and he really won it in 2009, I'm going to hear from them, which is certainly uh, the fan's right to do that. But I, I, can't, I can't shape my story based on what the, the fan reaction is going to be. Mm -hmm. I just have to respect that, that they love this team that I am. They love this team, this player that I am, am interested in from a story perspective. They're coming at it from a much more emotional angle than I am. Okay, so, but, but you do take, you know, what the fans care about yep. drives the story as much as, I mean, I, so, I, so I think it's an interesting thing. So you probably, in, just by the nature of your business, have to find topics that the fans care about. Right. Now, you know, the, the thought that occurred to me as we're having this conversation, it's got to be, I would think it's got to be a total victory if you can write something and then get the fans to care about it, sort of almost to take the reverse. Yes, yes. You've got to go and find a story that is really distinctive. Uh, I could write a story on the Patriots. Let's just stick with the NFL just for simplicity's sake. Uh, I could write a story on the Patriots or the Cowboys, and those will get reaction no matter what because those, nobody's lukewarm on the Patriots or the Cowboys. Everybody either loves them okay. or they hate them. So in that case, the fan kind of pushes the story. Exactly. Well, yeah, yeah. They, they, they push the, yeah, I know that anything I write, are bar we, we, we don't really have this spelled out, but we have barriers for entry mm -hmm. that if, uh, or barriers for, for interest, I should say. Uh, you know, if a player for the Patriots gets cut from the team, we're probably going to write about it. If a player for the Tennessee Titans, unless he's a top flight uh, quarterback or wide receiver running back, he's probably, we're probably not going to write about it just because the Titans, with all due respect to our friends in Nashville, don't have that same kind of national footprint and national interest. Do you have an, an example of, you know, I guess something where you found something novel and it kind of pushed, I don't know, the fans into an interesting place? Yeah, um, just this past week I was at, in Augusta, and this is not football, but this is still a fandom thing. Uh, I was in Augusta for the Masters, and I came across a story about Tiger Woods uh, meeting this fan because this fan's stepdaughter is, is a gentleman in, the, in his mid-50s who's uh, who is, is suffering from a very severe form of cancer and uh, stage of cancer and his stepdaughter reached out to Tiger Woods on social media and it with just in just four days managed to, to set up a meeting between Tiger and uh, her stepfather. I mean to think about that it's one of the most famous people in the world and she just badgered enough people and got to the right people and Tiger came, said hello, shook his hand, gave him a signed glove uh, at the end of one of his practice runs. And what this did was there are so many people who are anti-Tiger, who hate Tiger, or who think of him as just, uh, they, they hate him either because of his indiscretions or because he's just too good or because they're sick of hearing about him. And the comments that I got from that story were remarkable. People were saying, I'm looking at him in a new way now. I mm -hmm. see him in a new light. He's, you know, that was a really classy thing for him to do. He didn't have to do it, and he did it. So... 
when you get a story like that, when you see, when you show someone a different side of something, when you show someone, say, uh, if we go back to football, say, uh, we'll pick on the Titans some more. You go and you, you talk about Marcus Mariota, their quarterback, and you write a story. There was just a story, I didn't write this, but a couple weeks ago, he was at a camp for uh, Special Olympics kids, and there were hundreds of these kids there. He did not leave the camp until he threw a pass to every single kid, and every single kid caught a pass. I mean, that's a, that's a one-sentence story, and yet it completely reworks the way that you think about Marcus Mariota and, in turn, the Titans organization. So that's those kinds of stories, I think they're great to, to establish the kind of connection that you might not otherwise get. You know, so I'm a professor, and I think a lot about sports and marketing and you know, the, the player analytics side, you think about the, the story side of it. It's interesting to me listening, I, it's always interesting when I, when, I, when I talk to you, when you come in and talk to, talk to the classes here at Emory, in that there's a lot of similarity between what I might think of as, let's say, brand building mm -hmm. and what you do. And so, you know, th these stories about Mariota and Tiger Woods, they are almost, you can almost imagine these being the dream scenarios for the Tiger Woods brand manager. <laughs> and we know, we know this doesn't exist. I mean, it, it might exist. Oh, I think it does. It, maybe it does within the, agents, yeah. within the agencies. Um, but it, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing in that, you know, these guys are, you know, if, if brands have stories and athletes are brands, you are the translator of that stuff. Right. Do you ever feel like you're being fed that stuff? Oh, constantly. Constantly, yeah. There, there are brand management, whether or not it's called that, is very much an element of every major athlete's arsenal at this point. Well, and they, they set it up for that exact reason. And I would guess LeBron might be the, LeBron yeah. and Curry, the NBA guys, might be the height of that. Well, they, they absolutely are. I mean, those guys, they, everything that they do has to be, uh, it, it's view, has to be viewed through that brand management lens, which is why I think that people really, uh, people have an instinctive dislike of this stuff if it's artificial. If, mm -hmm. they, if they, they see Tiger Woods presenting a big check to a hospital, they, yeah. they understand that it's a good thing, but they, they recognize that there's something artificial behind it. So when they see something like this, him just meeting this guy at the driving range and handing a glove over, there's some authenticity to that. That isn't there with the with the kind of conventional brand management. Well, and, and, and I'll tell you what what a great word because authenticity has been you know a word that brand managers have loved for a long time, yes. right? It's almost like the idea of you don't you don't, yeah, the worst thing you can do is let your branding you let your branding <laughs> show. Um. What were your most popular stories, Jay? Are they the ones with the human element, the ones that you mentioned with yeah. Tiger Woods? You know, it's funny you say that because. Uh, my editors and I are kind of in discussion now about this. Over the last uh, 18 months, and you can probably guess where I'm going with this, the most popular, if you define it by the the biggest number of, of readers, have been angry ones, have been uh, politically based ones, have been ones about uh, President Trump or candidate Trump, uh, sports intruding into that. and and. That's maybe not necessarily the, the, the best guidance of what's popular, but it's what people react to. So people, anytime that sports and politics intersect, there's going to be a chunk of people who hate it. There's going to be a chunk of people who use it as their, as their platform. There's going to be very few people who were like, oh, okay. That's, there are going to be very few people who are indifferent about it. But in terms of popular ones, yet the stories that, that react on a human level are the ones that really have a 
the, pop, the positive connotation of popular. I, I wrote a story about um, five or six years ago about this fellow who was a lifelong race fan. He had never been to Daytona, Daytona International Speedway in Florida for the Daytona 500. He was dying of cancer. He was given a few weeks to live at most, maybe even a few days to live. And he said, you know what, I'm going to do this. This is back in February. He uh, packs himself up, gets in his, mini, in, his, uh, in his RV with his family, drives down to Daytona. Uh, Daytona, the 500 is a part of a, about a two-week-long time period called Speed Weeks, where they have all kinds of races and all kinds of things going on. So he gets there at the beginning of Speed Weeks. He goes and watches some of the early races. He goes and actually talks to some of the racers. He gets this great picture taken with the, with the Sprint girls, a little politically incorrect, but still these, these ladies wear these low-cut dresses, and they got a great picture taken with them. I mean, it's this poor, frail guy. He maybe weighs 75 pounds at this point. And about 48 hours before the race, he passes away there in the infield, in his RV. But he was there, and he had that moment. And so I went and I heard about this story, and I went and I tracked down the RV in the infield. I talked to his family. I sat in the RV there where he had passed away. I talked to his family that was still there. And it was a tremendous story, not, not because of anything that I did. I just basically related the facts as they were, and people really connected. I still hear people tell me about that story today that they remember. It was five or six years ago. And that's the kind of thing that I think you can't track with analytics, but you can track, you can get a, get a sense of what people react to. So it's, a, it's something that you can't follow on a spreadsheet, but, but if you're paying attention, you can see that people will resonate with that. They'll remember that story a lot more than they'll remember getting angry about uh, a, an NFL player kneeling. You know, they'll, they'll have this positive connection that I think will resonate a lot deeper with them. And, and so, yeah, I'm always on the lookout for those kinds of things. And stories. that positive connection is to NASCAR. Yes. Right? It's like, uh, I love what you said there, because I think that's kind of the key point. It's like, you know, in, in some ways, analytics are good for kind of small things that we can put numbers, or big things that we can put numbers to, but it's kind of this big picture stuff. And, I mean, you, you know, you, you think about, Feel good. I mean, I don't. I don't know. I, don't, I, won't, I won't do this justice, but it's almost feel-good story yeah. about a cancer patient dying on the infield. How do you quantify that? Right. right? It's like how many times? You know, it, it's a one-off kind of thing. And, it, and this is the kind of thing where I think as human beings, we get that that's big. To put it into numbers, it, it, ju it just doesn't work. Yeah, and I, and I don't in any way mean to dump on analytics. I mean, yeah. analytics very much have, their, have a, a very important role yeah. to play. But in this case, in this case, it's, this is much more about the heart than the head. Right. You know, and, and that's, the, the, that's our, <laughs> if we get, get deep for a moment, that's, as a human being, that's our internal warts. It's the heart versus the head and, and what's got the upper hand at any given moment. But I, I, think, that, I think that's great for, for where we're going with this. Yeah. It is kind of the, the stuff that... You know, so let's say I'm, um, let's say I'm a brave season ticket holder, and I'm, you know, maybe the analytics there is looking at if I raise the price a dollar, what does Mike Lewis do? Does he renew? Right? Yes. You know, to some extent, I'm going to hold my fingers close together. That might be this much of the the equation, but if you get into the history of the team and sort of the richness of, let's say, having, I didn't grow up in Atlanta, so mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't have great examples. As we were getting ready for the podcast, I was telling you a little bit about, you know, where my Chicago Bear fandom might come from, and it's this collection of, you know, watching the Bears on TV when they weren't off because of the blackout rule. Right. Endless highlights of Walter Payton, like, bouncing off of Chiefs on a highlight <laughs> where, you know, um, all the way going up through when refrigerator refrigerator Perry arrived, it was like 
what I remember about Refrigerator Perry, that he was like 350 pounds, which was a giant back then, going through Mike Ditka opening a hot dog restaurant in my hometown. I don't know how to quantify any of that, but I think that's the important stuff. Yeah. And I suspect that, you know, you probably have, Jay, you probably have similar things with Atlanta sports. Um, Ada, you probably have a few things with FSU sports. I mean, what's the kind of sticks with you guys as kind of these focal things growing up? For me, you know, FSU, it's just a lot of my friends, that was their school that they wanted to go to, the community, just people dressing up, you know, in FSU gear. It brings that kind of community. And I'm trying to get Ada to tell the story about how she painted a glitter guy once. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the garnet and gold glitter guys oh, at FSU? Yeah, yeah. One of my best friends was actually one of them, and he had asked me to paint him before a game, and so <laughs> we spread him with paint, glitter, and he could not get that stuff off for weeks. It was in his ears, <laughs> um, but it was a lot of fun. It's, you know, it's just FSU pride. See, I'm wondering if I start doing the little tomahawk chop uh, drum roll here, whether he'll just start Pavlovian reaction doing the chop here. It's, it's burned that deep into your DNA. Uh, yeah, for me, you know, I was I was a Braves fan. You know, my first fan experience was was being a kid at uh, Old Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. And so now, when I go to the new SunTrust Park and they've got this whole section that's like a museum, and I see relics of my childhood now in a museum, and I take my kids and their friends there, and, and they're looking at this stuff like they're at the Smithsonian. Well, it makes you feel old, but it also makes you feel connected. You know, they, they, they bring out the old players. They'll bring out, you know, Mark Lemke or Steve Avery's going to mm -hmm. come out and sign some baseballs. And you're like, yeah, I remember watching that dude back in 1991. And, and, it, and it keeps that kind of connection going. And that's exactly what I was, you know, hoping that you guys would say, because I do think it's, and it is kind of these, I don't, I don't want to call them strange connections, but they're kind of these unique connections that we have of, you know, we, we live life and it's like these are cultural institutions and we get these kind of rich experiences with these things. I mean, look, you're, you're, Ada is, is putting paint on guys and everyone in the stadium is looking at the glitter guys and the Taking horses. Taking pictures with them, yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, you mentioned the name of the stadium. I feel like, you know, in, in Pittsburgh, where my grandfather was from, you asked me the name of the stadium in Pittsburgh? I want to say Three Rivers. Absolutely. You know, it's it not, just not Heinz Field or anything else. It's it's, uh, it's Three Rivers. It's Three Rivers, and the Mets played at Shea Stadium, right? right? And, it's, and it's these things, this kind of really kind of rich, I don't know, this rich environment that we grow up in terms of sports. Well, we're always looking for connections. As, as human beings, you're always looking for connections. You're always looking for, you're, you're building memories, whether you know it or not, with your family. And so if you've got that kind of canvas that you're working on, it, it adds to your overall memory and your overall feeling. I mean, I, I remember my dad, my, my very first fan experience is a terrible story that my dad loves. Um, he, he was in his young, in, a young guy in his, in his late 20s, first time in a big league town, takes me to uh, Fulton County Stadium. I was I know, maybe five or six, and he decides, you know what? I'm going to give him anything he wants tonight. He can absolutely have a great night at the ballpark. I'm going to make a lifelong baseball fan. So he goes and stuffs me with hot dogs and Cokes and Cracker Jacks and all that, and then the little ice cream that you get out of the helmets and all that. And I had a great time until I got sick on the way home, threw up in the floorboard of the car. So it was, but I still remember to this day, I love it. It was a, it was a great experience, and my dad still tells the story. That's how, he, that's how he turned me into a sports fan. And it's that kind of stuff which maybe doesn't reflect so well on the Braves' concessions, but uh, everything else it, it goes over well with. So 
yeah, it's, it, each person has those kinds of connections with sports, and once once you figure out what they are in yourself, then you can and start can start to pass them on to the next generation. And I guess the challenge for for anybody marketing, for anybody selling that, is to figure out how to how to monetize that without looking like you're monetizing it. Because as I just talked about, that's the most inauthentic thing possible is trying to package that up and trying to resell it. Well, and I mean, how to capture it and then monetize it, yeah. right? And the key thing here is, right, we're talking about these stories that evolve over a lifetime. And then what, what, what information is the team actually going to have when they're making that decision? Let me just change directions yes. real quickly here. The other side of the equation. And I can think of, uh, I'm hoping you can help me think of some positive angles on this because I can sure think of some negative ones. Let's talk about sort of on-field analytics, the money, the money ball side of this. As I was getting ready for today, I was thinking, you know, are there stories, we know that stories affects how cons consumers, how fans think about teams. Are there stories that affect how players play and how teams operate? And, you know, it's the one that sort of popped in my head just because, you know, it's back on the news. It's, it will not go away. Is a story like Colin Kaepernick. And that is one of these things where it's going to get touchy for, ver for a lot of people very quickly. You know, maybe you can look at Colin Kaepernick analytically and say, well, this guy's got something. Maybe it's something great. Maybe it's something average at this point. But what's the impact on the team going right. to be? And so do you, can you think of stories where, I mean, I, I guess the, to me the holy grail, if you can think of stories where there was this positive thing that grew into something. Yeah, you always have players who will come on late to a team and be kind of a clubhouse leader, kind of a clubhouse presence, somebody who will step in or who will step up. Uh, you know, you have players that will, that will serve a role, and I'm trying to think as I speak, and I can't off the top of my, I'm sure that people listening to this have, can come up with 50 while we're sitting here blanking. Yeah. But, but you hear the story about the player that, that, that comes on to a championship team, or, or comes on to a young team and leads the team. I mean, I guess LeBron James would be a good example of that because he, he played for Cleveland, he leaves and goes to Miami, uh, wins a championship in Miami, and in his absence, Cleveland is just flailing like a, like a toddler with those little swimmies on in a pool, and he comes back and he basically leads a team that, that was about as talented in terms of basketball as the three of us and leads them to the NBA championship eventually. And so it's not just his talent that does that. He's, he is the most talented basketball player on the planet, but he's also got a presence, something mm -hmm. more, that brings a positive impact. And you can, you can, you can write books on LeBron's uh, presence in Cleveland because it had a, uh, had a, had a rejuvenating impact on the city as For well. the whole city, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, the other one that crosses my mind today, simply because it was all over the news this morning, is, um, which gives you a hint of when we're recording this, <laughs> uh, is this issue with the Patriots of Brady and Gronkowski yes. wanting to skip a, uh, what would they call it, a, um, the, a non-bandatory right, workout. The voluntary team workouts, yes. So I, I guess the question is, you know, do you think, I mean, because you're, you're around these guys more, yeah. it's like, does that story get into the media and the, the story becomes something that then sort of magnifies and feeds back with the team? Oh, absolutely it does. Yeah, the Patriots are a great example of that, not to go, to go too far down the New England rabbit hole, but the Patriots are a team that, by all accounts, are basically held together with duct tape at this point. You've got, you've got Tom Brady, who is 
no matter how long he plays, he's on the down slope of his career. He's on the back nine of his career. He has a trainer, a guy named Alex Guerrero, that he completely trusts with his own physical health, with his own every aspect, physical, mental, spiritual, all of this, independent of the team. And Brady has had several players come to him and say, hey, I want to train with your guy, which upsets the players, uh, upsets the trainers of the Patriots. So there's this real division between Brady and the Patriots officials, and it, it really started to well up last year. It started, ESPN broke a couple of stories about how fractured this team was, and they're holding it together because they're all professionals and they're all winning, but I, if you are listening to this in, in any later than the 2018 season, I will be stunned if the Patriots hold together after the 2018 season. It's just, there's just too many forces that are at work behind the scenes that are, that are pulling this team to pieces. I, I, I could see that, and as a marketing guy, I almost look at that, and I, and I hear that story, and it's like, there's too many brands within the Patriots Excellent that are point. competing to to be the king of the right. hill, right? They, they've all, the, the individuals almost have incentives that don't totally align with the team, and it's, like, frankly, it's remarkable how long they've they've kept that oh, together. It's, it's a miracle, yeah. You know, in, in some ways, I, I, f I think I found even more common ground with you in terms of how I think <laughs> about my world and how you think about your world, because, like, I, when I think about analytics, I tend to think about, like, like I said, that that analytics are something that kind of helps us on the edges. There's something like that nudges us to the right thing, whether it's about consumer behavior, whether it's about um, you know really sort of well, we got the NFL draft coming up, right? Whether it's deciding who the right player is, the numbers are going to help you, the models might help you, but there's a lot more that the it's going to be sort of left out of the models, and it kind of sounds that's the same way in your world in terms of. Story yeah, formation. It and is, and, and there's, there's some kind of, of essential truth that, that, that lies between the two of our, our approaches here. And I, and I always find it fascinating to see, to, to, to test something from multiple angles. One team that's really uh, making the case for that right now is the Philadelphia 76ers, NBA team in the playoffs, looking strong, looking like they're going to be set up this way to be a, a contender, if, if not a championship contender, at least a playoff level team for the next five to seven years. Why? Because they were terrible throughout the last five years. They were god-awful, setting records for how bad they were losing. And the, the, the ethical implications of tanking to get better draft picks are, are outside this discussion, but tanking, that's what they did. Tanking for multiple years, right? Yeah, tanking, yeah, tanking for an entire generation of fandom, basically, but it seems to be paying off at this point. And so that's something that, that would not have been achieved without an analytical approach and, and it also makes for a hell of a story, too, if they can pull it off. Yeah, actually, th that, that is a great story. And, it, I, I, and I think that's actually a great, a great, great piece for analytics because I think a lot of times when people talk about analytics, it's sort of a one-off deal of who are we going to draft this year. Yeah. I mean, look, we, we got a local basketball team uh, that has you know, struggled over time. <laughs> And, you know, if you were to ask me, I mean, let, let's sort of reverse this. Let's, I mean, let, let's talk about the Hawks because I, I think it's a fascinating question of, like, if I was tr put in charge of trying to build the Hawks, you know, how would I do it? And so as, let's say, the analyst, you know, I, I do think I would want to go beyond sort of this kind of one-year, two-year and I do think maybe you do need like a you know a five or a ten year horizon. It's yeah, it's fascinating. For NBA is very different from NFL and drafting. The NFL and drafting is 
it is it is very much analytics driven, but there's also a huge element of throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. To, to be crude about it, NBA, you pick the wrong guy in a draft, it will haunt you for a decade. You pick the guy who who the guy right after you ends up being a, a Hall of Fame player, it will haunt you forever. You know, Portland still has not gotten over picking uh, Sam Bowie over Michael Jordan and picking Greg Oden over Kevin Durant. I mean, it's it's the kind of thing where there's a much smaller margin for error in the NBA. The NFL, at least half your draft picks are guaranteed to just stink. That's right. just the way it is. But the NBA, you're right. You have you have such a tight window and such a tight margin for error that you've got to think longer term than just well, a year. Well, and, and I think that's a great point. And it's, you know, I think in the NFL, you are almost... And again, I'll sort of geek out here. Sorry, sorry, Jay. I'll geek out here for a second. It's like in the NFL, what you're probably trying to do as an analyst is get value with little variance. You know, like if I'm picking in the second round, I want to get a solid, solid starter, and I want to minimize variance because it's a numbers game, right? I've got, I've got a, a, a massive roster, and I'm sort of, in some ways, I'm building an army. But in the NBA, what I think you need to do in terms of analytics is almost maximize variance. And what I mean by that is it seems to win in the NBA that what you need is you need to have three of the top ten players in the league. Okay, so how do you get those? So it's almost like you have to do two things. You kind of have to lose for a long term to get yourself in the right bracket. And you got you got to swing for the fences each time. Yeah. You know, you don't want the guy. I mean, it's, it's the old thing, right? You don't want the four-year guy because you know what he is. You kind of love the high school kid, and we might be going back to that era. Yeah. Because who knows? I could win the lottery, literally. That was exactly what I was going to bring up is you think about three of the best players the last 25 years, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Kevin Garnett, all high school guys, guys that were at their senior prom one year or one, one month and then playing in the NBA the next. By the same token... When those guys came out uh, and they hit it so big, just dozens of other players were told by their agents or by whoever, said, yeah, go ahead and do it. So guys like Jonathan Bender, Corleone Young, people that you don't even hear their names anymore, just I was hoping you'd say Eddie Curry as Eddie a, Curry. As a yes. Chicago guy. <laughs> you know, <these laughs> Although he, at least he made it to the league, and he had a, he had a year, he had a, a good good journeyman career, but he wasn't as big as he could have been. And maybe we're going back to the era, and yeah. it, to that era, and it will make things you know ever more interesting. All right. Well, thanks for your input, guys. Uh, thanks for joining us, Jay, and we appreciate all the listeners for tuning in. You can learn more about this podcast episode on InfluentialAnalytics.com. You can also follow Jay on Twitter. His Twitter handle is jbusby. You can also check out his articles on sports.yahoo.com. We hope you join us next time. Thank you, Jay. Thank you.